Artist Praxis Podcast, where artists make meaning of their art making. Welcome to the second season of Artist Praxis Podcast. I am Deborah Fatsion-Grodsky. I'm an artist and art historian. And in my academic work, I research creativity and theory for artists. I've been working with artists for more than 15 years, writing about art and teaching at universities. I've always seen myself as an artist too, but I started to intentionally build my work as an artist in 2017 when I went through what I call a creative recovery. That's when I integrated my ideas and my material life in the true sense of praxis. I created this podcast to connect with other artists and to bring to you inspiration from the creative process of contemporary artists. If you, like me, want to continue expanding your creativity and imagination by learning with other artists, you've come to the right place. In the second season, I'm hosting the episodes by myself, but I want to acknowledge my partner in creating the podcast, the amazing artist Sara Hiagada, who shares the podcast with me in the first season. In each episode, we have one interview in which the artist talks about the making of one recent artwork. The interview starts with the artist describing their work and ends with a question about a book or text that impacted their creative process. At the core of it, we have a conversation about everything that artists work with, from materials to thoughts, feelings to tools, references to intuition. In today's episode, I talk with artist Tahila Mintz, who works across multiple platforms to amplify the voices of indigenous people and the natural world. She's an indigenous EOM and Jewish woman who focuses on ancestral relationships, gender equilibrium, contemporary indigenous issues, and recuperating knowledge that has been unraveled by colonialism. She has been photographing for more than 20 years in over 40 countries, and received her MFA from the University of Texas. Mintz is the founding executive director of OGSTA, Sustainable Indigenous Futures, an organization that creates an ancestral knowledge land-based curriculum for K-12 students, runs a summer camp for indigenous youth, provides disaster relief as well as other models of community support. We can find links to Mintz's work and to the podcast in our show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, so talking about the Ancestral Gratitude Project means talking about gratitude, and it is rooted in the Haudenosaunee original teaching of the Gunyonyok, and that is about gratitude, and they're the words that come before all else, and it is rooted in our relationships to the natural world and to each other as humans and to the strawberries and to, to many different parts of what exists in the landscape of living and life and spirit. Uh, and it's a project that came about a couple of years ago. It began a couple of years ago, but I will begin by taking you through a little bit of a experience of understanding it 
as I'm sure that you haven't experienced it yet since it's not out in the world publicly yet. Um, so I work in many mediums and this is my first time working in this particular space. And you would have a headset, a VR virtual reality headset that you would put over your eyes. And if you've ever not had one of these, it's just, it's fairly light and you feel the strap on the back pressing on your head and you just keep your eyes open and it has, you can blink of course, and it has uh, an audio that comes through. So your experience would be in a field, in this space with beautiful flowers and the light coming in an early daylight and an elder is in front of you speaking in the Seneca language. He's quite extraordinary to look at. He's an amazing man and has a very resonant voice. And you're present with him there and you can look in all directions because of what's capable in this medium. And there's bugs flying around you and there's a woman standing next to him and she's listening. And you sit in this space or you stand in this space and you listen to him talking and you receive whatever understandings you get from that experience. It transitions. And I'm not actually going to tell you all the things because I'd like people to experience it. And without being with it, you wouldn't get to. So I will just say that you go through many different landscapes and you listen to the words of the woman speaking in English as well talking about creation and talking about our relationships to the natural world and how we are healed in that relationship and how we are guardians and responsible in that relationship as well. And I take the viewers through intimate spaces with animals because a virtual reality camera, you can set it up. I suppose you can with any camera, but with this, you have to and move out of the scene because it records in all directions. So I was able to be in a space with some beautiful large animals that then came and investigate. And so you as a viewer experience all of them coming over and surrounding you. And you can be in this space with all of these wild animals. And you're in the forests and you're also with powwow dancers doing the smoke dance, which is traditional from the Seneca people. And there's different teachings that are shared. There are moments that are very quiet and calm, and there are times of higher energy. And I think that's all I will share in hopes that in the future, you will all experience it, but that hopefully that has given you a little idea of the experience in the headset. That's wonderful, Tahila. I'm uh, very curious about, first, the um, aspect of the language here. So you mentioned that the elder is speaking at Seneca language? Uh, is that the language that is spoken throughout the whole piece? Uh, so he speaks Seneca in the beginning, and then it transitions into English for the rest of the piece from her. I see. And also regarding the sound, are we listening to the sounds um, that were recorded in place too? Or uh, is there other kinds of sound that you put into it? Yeah, there's the ambient sound. Mm -hmm. There is um, the the voice of of Nikki speaking throughout. There is at one point, which is ambient sound. It's someone's drum and singing, but you're watching the the recording of them. And when Clayton's speaking in the beginning, it's in Seneca, and the you hear the animals and the snorts that they do, and it's it's all ambient sound that has different things in those spaces. But when Nikki's talking, you also hear the birds 
you also hear the ocean, or you, you know, you hear the wind. Um, although I had to cut a lot of the wind because it, it hits the microphone, you know, and takes over. Um, but yeah, all of the sounds are still there. And, and for me, it was important to have some of it be in the Seneca language to guard the language. And he's one of the last of the fluent speakers, but also just because I think there's so much we can understand through someone else speaking and we don't have to know exactly what a word means. And I enjoy that as part of the experience. I think that's important as most people won't know what he's saying, mm-hmm. even people who speak the language, unless they're very fluent. So I am very curious about the use of the virtual reality in terms of how you came up with the idea. You mentioned this is the first time you're using virtual reality in your work. So I'm wondering how the use of this uh, material became necessary once you had the idea for this project. I had this vision. I mean, I guess as artists, right? Like, how do we get our ideas? It's always... You know, it's something we've talked about. And I think that often my ideas come from me having a lot of feeling about something happening in the world. And I went like, okay, well, I need to talk about that. Can I transform that? How can I support uh, our healing, our health, the visibility of Indigenous women, the words of the water to be shared? You know, all these things inspire my work a lot, as well as a texture of something can inspire me. Usually it's inspiring me to something I've thought about or something in the past or smells. And I've been processing a lot the high rate of suicide for Native youth. And um, I do some support work in that way with community members um, or I work with other community members who do a lot of that support. And, And I was really sad about that. And I know it's not just for natives, but I know that Native Americans and indigenous people all over the world are up to 11 times higher for this rate, depending on the countries. And I know the rates are already super high, um, particularly COVID time, but you know, it's a real issue often. And so I was thinking and talking to other people about these relationships and And also processing what it feels like to be sad or to be depressed or things that I've experienced or supported other people through. What is it that is needed in that? And um, looking at more in indigenous communities and talking to to other elders and people in the community, it really felt like connection was needed and feeling the rooted in who we are and our identity, which has really been whitewashed uh, and problematic for us, you know, really intersected. And so this teaching of the Gunyonyok and this gratitude and connection to everything felt beautiful. And for me, being in the woods is so healing. And those connections are just so bountiful. And so I make films and I make photographs and I make collages and all these things, but I wanted it to be something that youth would want to get engaged with. And I wanted to feel it. How can you be totally submerged in an experience. And it was like, oh, virtual reality. That's what it does, right? I know that's what it does. I never experienced it. I'm like, I know that's what it does. It's it's certainly got to be it. And so then that was it. (laughs) (laughs) I had to figure out how to do it and get a camera for it. And it got loaned to me. And there's many 
things that fell into place. Yeah, so I imagine that there was a learning process there of how to use this camera. And (laughs) there's a huge learning curve that I'm still working on. And I imagine that also uh, you're relying on collaborations with other people. Yes. Can you speak more about all that? I would love to. Yeah, I, um, I came up to Cornell Virtual Embodiment Lab and I was talking to Andrea um, Stevenson, one who directs it. And I was like, this is, I think I want to be up here and I want to be working in this way and doing this. And she says, oh, okay, this sounds amazing. Have, you know, what's your experience with virtual reality? And I said, well, I've never tried it before. <laughs> and she said, well, we got to change that. So we went up to the lab and I tried it and I was, it was amazing. There was a dinosaur running at me and, <laughs> and then there was me on a ledge and I'm really afraid of heights. My one real fear that and needles. And um, I was terrified. And she's like, you can move around. I'm like, uh-uh, I cannot go anywhere. I was so afraid. And I said, this is it. This is what it is. Right. And so we talked about it and Insta360 said that they would loan her this camera. They reached out to collaborate with Cornell and she said, well, we don't need it. Maybe you want to do this. And so she connected us and I was loaned this professional, you know, records an 8K video camera or 360 VR camera. And it was amazing. And I collaborated with the two people who are in, in the piece, Clayton Logan, who's an amazing Seneca elder, a really an, a knowledge carrier in so many ways, as well as Nikki Thompson, and then other people at Onondaga at other nations, because these are t- teachings that are across the Haudenosaunee territories. And, um, and then I collaborated with more people to make the creation, right? So I'd been photographing for National Geographic uh, in Seneca Territory, which is a community I live in uh, part of the time. So I'd been spending a lot of time with my friend Gordon now, my friend, after all that time, and he cares for all the, the buffalo, all the bison in the territory and facilitates. So I talked to him and he took me in with them, which we had done different times. And we set everything up and convinced them sort of to go in a direction by driving in different directions, you know? And so all these other people really supported this from in the community and we're excited about it. Um, And now we're going up tomorrow for the next two days to Buffalo to partner with, and we is myself and Andrea and Troy, who's an indigenous studies professor at Cornell and um, five undergrads and one grad student from here to go up and use all this Cornell lab equipment to share it with the community. And Nax is partnering with us and having a big event and Beanie's Cafe is cooking all this food that we're giving to people. And so the community can come out and try it. And then um, we can see, and then uh, all the different ideas and feedback because it's not done. And then I can go back into the piece and rework it and finish it. But it's a piece it's art I always make art for community which doesn't mean it doesn't end up in a museum somewhere as well or you know in all sorts of different spaces 
but I always start with a community. And so it's important for this to really have community level engagement at all parts of making this art piece. That's very interesting. And I'm wondering about how do you manage uh, in your own creative process, the first vision, let's say, that you had of this project, how you, you wanted it to be, right? Even like in the most uh, detailed aspects of the visual material, really, um, how it would look like and how it would feel like and how much it gets transformed throughout the process of making and how much you feel, I don't know, like uh, you feel that you want to allow that to happen, that you want to control or that you want to really embrace all this community aspect into the uh, final work. Can you speak more about that uh, aspect of the creative process for yourself? On the front end, I like to have a lot of control and be really meticulous. It's probably why photography really held me for, you know, more than 20 years is because mechanical, particularly the older cameras. Um, and then like in photography, I like to do things that create spaces for something else to happen that I don't have control of. So in photography, I will make in film, I'll make a long exposure and I know the film will start to break down. So there's a piece of it that isn't about what I set out. It means that what I'm creating is not just what I'm creating. It's what the subject is sharing as well. Even if I have the final say of what does or does not get shown in the end, the wind isn't, you know, affecting as well. And so working with video or working with this virtual reality experience, I made particular choices. I knew that I wanted to be in there with the buffalo. And then there is no telling what they're going to do, right? <laughs> and I knew that I wanted these dancers and I knew I wanted them to surround the camera. So you look in every direction and there's someone different of a, you know, there's kids and there's adults and there's men and there's women and there's, you know, I wanted that, but then what they do, they're going to do what they do and they're going to move in and out and they are navigating what that experience is like for the viewer. and. I like that space. It makes it all interesting for me. If if I determined everything ahead of time and then forced it all to be in that particular determination, I would be bored as an artist. So it makes it that it's interactive all the time for me. And I feel very comfortable working that way with the response of environment or person or what spirit. And then uh, that leads me to the question of how and when do you decide that the work is done, mm -hmm. that you got enough community engagement and that you, you know, arrived to a point that you had enough feedback, right? And that uh, you're like, this is set, this is done. I think that's hard with lots of pieces when I think about it, but there also arrives that moment that I just know it resonates in a particular way. And I'm like, okay, this is done. Which doesn't mean I couldn't work on it for longer because I can always work on everything for longer, but I don't need to. It really holds space, meaning it evokes something in me and others. It feels complete and in balance. And I can say, okay, and now I can move on for now. I think that's the best way I can answer. That's a very hard question. I think, but that's my best answer. 
So um, while you were talking about this project, you mentioned many times about how it was important for you um, in your creative process to talk with people, right? And like that's so many of your ideas came out of things that you talked with someone. And uh, I felt that uh, even though I didn't uh, experience it yet, I felt that the aspect of uh, of uh, oral history of these elders who were speaking um, is very important uh, in the work. And not only because of the Seneca language, but also because of the messages that they're bringing. But I imagine that also because of the experience of listening to their voices, right? Um, and you already brought up a little bit about the relationship of uh, how you see this work in relation uh, to your work with photography. But I'm I'm kind of wondering about this aspect of uh, the oral history and the aspect of bringing this other element that is not only the visual element that is predominant in in the work with photography, right? So I guess my question is related with the idea of like, how do you see this particular work in relation with what you've done before and with what you're thinking about doing next? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, but I, I, I'm very curious if there is an aspect of this, um, the importance of the spoken word, the importance of this um, experience of exchange through talking. Uh, if that's something that is uh, predominant here. For me, sound has become really important in the last, I don't know, two or three years, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, I began photographing Haudenosaunee women. And in this project that was Women of the Longhouse, Haudenosaunee women's um, resilience. So it's really about I'm making these large, these portraits to be large, but I did all these audio recordings and I listened to them to say an interview would be improper because I would ask them to introduce themselves and it could be from 20 to 30 minutes of them introducing themselves. Right. And so I'm not actually engaging in much direction of what they share. Although I also ask one or two questions to really about, can you expand in these stories or in this space? And then they share more and I'm very excited. I'm going to show these portraits in Sharjar. I think it's in February for their biennial. And it will be a room with these portraits and the audios. So you hear their voices. There'll be headsets at each of the portraits so that you can look at this woman and share space with her in this way of listening to her talking. Because there's so much in a voice. And in a cadence, I think that's the right word, but the way someone speaks and pauses. And I was creating the work to be a book for inspiring women and young Native girls and just everyone. And I enjoy that, but I think there's something lacking to not hear the women's voices and just see the words. So it's become very important to me, the audio component. And I I love photography and I will not stop making photographs, but I find that I'm trying to incorporate sound and now this complete immersion as well in the work that I'm creating. And I, the next um, piece that I want to create, the next piece I know I will be creating 
<laughs> that I don't know what it is yet, but I'm going to do a residency there in Sharjah and I will be working with different women's groups there. And some of them I've seen and they do in videos that were shared with me and they do different mm, traditional arts and they sing. So incorporating something with them as well as doing a performance piece that I'll be doing that's in relation to the water, which is right up my alley of things I do. And then I'll be uh, spending time in, in creating something with the turtles that are there. They have these amazing turtles. There's a, a conservancy. And so I will spend time with these three spaces and then I will create something as a piece. And it's just the beginning stages. So I'm not sure what will come from that, but it'll certainly have part of it will be in 360 and part of it will be performance and part of it will be sound and photos. Um, and I don't know what it looks like yet because it's only the beginning of planning. Um, that's super exciting because it sounds like your work is really expanding a lot in terms of medium now. Um, and of course, this virtual reality piece that we've, we've been talking about um, is a big milestone. I've never done performance work, really, but I do a lot of ceremony in my own life. And I feel like virtual reality, my experience with virtual reality is now pressing me to feel comfortable to uh, myself be in spaces out in public. So, Tahila, we are arriving to the last question in this interview. And um, we've been talking about the spoken word, the oral histories. And uh, I'm wondering if there is anything in the written <laughs> word that impacted you in the creation of this work. So if there is any book, any literary references, any kind of um, text that impacted your creative process. There's one, this little booklet that is shared here locally, maybe not locally too, I don't know. And it is just, it's the Gunyonyok, it's the Thanksgiving address. And it goes through in part, it's in Seneca and then it's in English as well. And it just goes through each of the parts of gratitude. And while I would have dinners with Clayton and Nikki, and in each dinner, I was really gifted with being shared with about these teachings, one of the teachings per dinner kind of thing. And that really helped me create and also helped me realize things that um, I didn't know how to do yet with this technology. So will be for a future project. But as much as I valued that, which I did abundantly, I still also would read this little book and go back to it and keep looking at it because it's also been prepared by someone and it's a very clear articulation of these points of gratitude and all these different beings that are a part of our experience of living. So that that's really the little book influenced this the most. And then there's, you know, lots of other things that influenced um, me and my growth to get here now, but um, that would be a little book I'd talk about. That's wonderful. I really want to see it. And also, so, um, I can expand my understanding of the um, title of the work of the Ancestral Gratitude Bridge, uh, which is uh, such a beautiful title. Uh, thank you so much, Tahila. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's been really a pleasure to talk with you always. This season of Artist Praxis podcast is created by Deborah Fatian Grodzki. Original music by André Javi. If you enjoyed the interview, leave us a review and share this episode with a friend. That will help us reach a broader audience. If you are an artist and would like to be interviewed, or if you would like more information about the podcast, please visit artistpraxis.com.